full of grace and truth. And Jesus, as we've worshipped you and prayed in your presence, sought you, as we've greeted one another, as you greet us, we pray your grace, your generosity, the, the, the sort of expansiveness of your soul towards us, and your truth, rock solid, dependable, irresistible. Your grace and truth would abound in our hearts and minds. We, we kind of give you permission to explode in us. Grace and truth. That we would be changed. Well, we don't just want to be entertained or sort of intrigued this evening. We want to be changed. We want to make a difference in the places where we live and work. As we live out your grace and truth. We pray for Liz now as she uh, kind of tees up this series as we look to engage with different issues that our culture wrestles with, the questions that we, perhaps all of us have, where we sense ultimately they find something of an answer in you. So uh, feed us, teach us, enlighten us through Lydia. Give her little stature of authority and poise as she speaks. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, so as Tim was saying, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series that will take us through to uh, Christmas time this evening. And it's really um, a kind of apologetics one, which means giving reasons for the Christian faith. So we're going to be looking at various things. Um, we're going to have a science week, which Barney's going to do with Tim, which is going to be amazing. I think I saw Barney. He's down back there. Um, I'm going to look at uh, themes like work and rest, creation. What are we created for? What is creation itself all about? And the big questions that get hammered at us sometimes as Christians around suffering. But this evening, um, what we want to do is really set the scene and take a kind of step back, think what is going on in our culture. We know that God is the Lord of all of history. Where have we you know, been going for the past kind of 2,000 years and how have we got to this point where we are now? And what are we called to as a church in this place, 2019, glorious city of London? And as I was um, considering this, um, I just remembered that there is a verse nestled in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles, um, chapter 12, verse 32, and it talks of the tribe of Issachar. Um, the tribe of Issachar was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and as David, King David in the 10th century, is about to kind of go back into the land and take it from bad King Saul, um, he gathers around himself his mighty men, his mighty men, and they come from the 12 tribes of Israel. And Issachar is de um, defined like this. So 1 Chronicles 12, 32. From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And actually that is our mandate as church. And that's what this sermon series is about. That we will become people that we are people who know the times we live in and are deeply culturally aware, deeply scripturally aware, so aware of the Spirit of God and all he's doing in our midst and know what we should do to call people back to the truth that is Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Amen.
Amen. So, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 17, and that's page 1051 in your Green Bibles. Um, We're going to look at verses 22 down to 28. That's Acts 17, verses 22 to 28. And the way we're going to do it this evening is that uh, we'll read a few verses and then tease them out a little bit. And then after that, we're going to get to the diagram, which is very exciting. Um, So, before we read this, let's take a further moment to pray. The Spirit of God is here amongst us, but let's invite him in a new way, in a specific moment. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active. Lord, we thank you there is nowhere that we can flee from your presence. As we come now, in this half an hour or so, to gather under your word, to continue to worship you in spirit and truth, would you enliven us and would you change us for the sake of the world? Amen. Amen. So, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to um, 28. And here, um, in these verses, Luke is recording the words of Paul. And Paul has found himself in Athens, and he finds Athens to be an interesting place. And the Athenians, they worship many, many gods. In fact, we're not quite sure how many. And these gods aren't particularly great gods. They're sort of quite needy, so the Athenians spend a lot of time going into the temple, offering sacrifices, doing all sorts of quite perverse things, really, in order to try and persuade the gods who are a bit petulant, to do what they want them to do, to bless them. And there's a temple cult, and there's not much truth about. Nobody's really sure who or what God is. And into this scene, Paul comes, and he steps in with this piece of apologetics, and he tells the people of Athens, the philosophers and the crowds, this place of many gods and whistled images, exactly who the one true God is. So here we go, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And here he goes, proclaiming the truth of the living God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. The true God, Paul's there, is the creator God. He's transcendent, he's sovereign, he's always present and he doesn't live in these temples that have been made by human hands, these temples of Greece and Rome. Paul will get to Rome um, later on as uh, the book Acts goes on. Actually, he is the living God, Lord of all of history, Lord of heaven and earth. And so Paul continues, verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, unlike these temple gods in all their petulance. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This God, this true God of ours, he sustains everything and it is only in him that we live and breathe. It is only in him that creation is sustained. And so the logical outworking of that is that actually when we ignore God, when we step back from God, when culture, society ignores God, things go a bit all right, they get a bit fractured. He's the God of creation. He is the sustaining power. Verse 26. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is sovereign. He is always, always in control. But he is the Lord of all of history. And he has the big picture in mind. He knows where we're heading. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so when people come at us, understandably so, saying, actually, I don't get what's going on in that situation, we can articulate that God is good. And God is working in the muck and the mire and the difficulties of human history. But he's doing it as the Lord of all of history, with his eyes lifted up, who knows everything that has been, everything that will be. It's his eternal purposes that are being enacted in history. He has appointed times and he has marked out the boundaries of the land. Verse 27. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. God is always speaking. He loves every person he has ever created. But he loves to be in relationship with us. And so he's given us free will and he invites us in to reach out for him and to choose him. He's always whispering, always calling. Verse 28. For in him, in him, we live and move and have our being. And this is the crux of the matter about who God is and how he's created us and how he's created the world, that we are in him. We were in him right at the beginning of creation when he created us as man and woman in his image, where he gave us dignity and he says, this is who you are, you're made for justice and creativity, for worship, for rest, for pleasure with each other, to know me, to be in relationship. We were in him at the creation of the world. And then when things went wrong in the fall, he didn't leave us, he didn't abandon us. And he came in the person of Jesus Christ so that again, in redemption, we are more fully in him. Jesus, God Almighty, came as one of us. And in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, he assumed all of our humanity, so that we're eternally in him. Somehow, in the mystery of faith, humanity is in the heavenlies. It's with God. We're in him. We're in him. So we're in him as image bearers, and we're in him through Jesus, eternally in relationship with God. And he's the creator. He sustains. But the reality of that is that when we choose not to be in him, We reject something of who we are and what we were made for. And we reject something of creation. And then Paul concludes. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So even these poets in Athens are stumbling on the truth that we're sons and daughters of God. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? God is the creator God, he's the God of all of human history, he sustains everything, he's always present. We are in him as image bearers, we're his hands and feet, we're in him through Jesus Christ. And he calls culture and a people group to be aware of that. And when we are in him, when we are conscious of him, the world flourishes and we flourish. And in many ways we've arrived at a point in human history in our society where most of our culture is not in him (laughs) in any way, shape or form. And it's actually quite a unique moment because these guys in Athens were not in Christ until Paul came and some of them began to be saved. But they were spiritually aware. 
But we're in this unique point in history where for the first time in all of human history, our culture has kind of done away with God. We said, actually, we don't need much of a concept of the spiritual. So we're neither in him, in Jesus, and we're not particularly spiritually aware. So what we're going to do tonight is look at how we have got there and what the Lord's doing in the midst of it, the hope that is to be found. So if you can um, find the blue circle, that's 22, that's 22. Um, also, push out the blue circle, but you know that people in the front row are going to be able to see this. Four, seven, and Tim helped me with this uh, this afternoon because this morning was actually anti-clockwise, which was even more confusing. But now we're wonderfully going clockwise, so that helps. Okay. Um, and um, some of this has been taken from various sort of Christian uh, thinkers and preachers at the moment. And um, there's a chap called John uh, Tyson, who's a pastor in New York. Um, I think he stole it from Tim Keller, who stole it from a guy called Charles Taylor. But it is good stuff that we can walk through. It helps us understand how we've ended up here as a culture, how we have gone from sort of Acts 17 realities to where we are right now. So what happened after Acts, after the kind of close of the New Testament, is that in the first few centuries, most of the AD time, and people began to become Christians. Christianity spread like a wildfire. It was worked out who this Jesus was. It was worked out what the Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was worked out um, what the Spirit does in our world. And then in 325, so 325 AD, the Emperor of Rome, Emperor Constantine, he becomes a Christian and he basically authenticates what has been going on for a couple of centuries. And he says actually Christianity is legal and it's good, and then Christianity spreads even more sort of wildfire-ish um, throughout the Western world. And just to say when we're talking about this stuff, the Western world. And so for 325, right through to about the 17th century, so about three, four hundred years ago, the bedrock, the worldview of our culture, of our nation, of anyone you would have met on the streets, was Christian. And Christianity was totally plausible and it was totally desirable. It was plausible because all our systems of kind of government and law and education, all our sociological understandings were based on Christianity and were based on readings of scripture. And it was deeply, deeply desirable because you could only get ahead in life if you were a Christian. Actually, people who were seen to be kind of dissenting or even questioning the kind of dominant um, Catholic faith, they were, they were barred from the universities of the land, they were barred um, from parliament, all of that stuff. You had to be a Christian to get ahead in life. And so until about three or four hundred years ago, each of us sitting here would have found it deeply plausible to be a Christian. That was what our world was based on. And we would have found it deeply, deeply desirable if we wanted to get ahead in life. And then what began to happen about the 16th century, uh, 17th century was a really, really good thing. Um, theologians, church leaders like Luther and Calvin, they began to question what salvation was really about. Was it about faith by works, as the Catholic Church had stated, as was the kind of bedrock of Christendom? Um, or was there something deeper going on? As they read the book of Romans, they saw that salvation was through faith, was through Jesus Christ alone and not through anything that we could do through works. 
But what that did was place quite an individual emphasis on faith. And again, that wasn't wrong. We're all individuals before God, but we're all individuals who are called to also work in community, just as God is both uh, sort of one and free. And as this rise of the individual began to gain speed, it stopped being worked out in reference to God. Actually, people began to just say, who am I? Who am I? I want a bit more personal autonomy. And so the trajectory, the circle, began to gather pace. And so you hear about the 18th and 19th century, and we see the kind of rise of uh, secular thought. Where there, the truth of God begins to be suppressed a little. And it's not that in the 18th and 19th century people didn't believe in God. But what happened was that they began to express God in a sort of deist fashion. So this whole concept of deism emerged, which said that actually God, God did exist, but God did not involve himself in the lives of his people. God did not involve himself in the world. God was this remote God. And they looked at scripture and they said, actually, we can't really believe that all these miracles happen. This is a scientific revolution. Surely science has disproved all of this. And so they began to take the miracles out of the Bible and just say, actually, those are metaphors. Those are for an old time. They looked at the resurrection and they said, you know what? It wasn't a bodily resurrection. You just didn't actually rise from the dead. It's just a kind of spiritual metaphor. It's an idea of us being renewed as people. They emptied scripture. And they looked at humanity and rightly saw that we are the pinnacle of creation. Genesis, when God looked at us, he said, it is very good. Those are very good over each and every one of us. But they forgot about the fool. Got hold of the fool, looked at it and said, actually, we need to do away with this whole idea of sin. And we just need to kind of replace it with a sort of natural morality and things like that. Began to take God out of the equation and say, it's okay for you to have your faith. Your faith needs to be a private thing over here. And so Christianity suddenly isn't so plausible anymore. People begin to wonder, has science disproved Christianity? And Christianity isn't so desirable anymore. Because actually, maybe we just need to get God out of our systems of government. Maybe that's not very appropriate anymore. Maybe we need to get God out of our sort of law courts and things like that. The world begins to be emptied of the sacred as a secular project um, takes place. Mark Sayers, he's um, a brilliant um, kind of church leader and thinker um, in Australia, he just says this, secularism is an attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. Secularism is an attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. But the thing is that can't work. That can't work because we open scripture, we see verses like Acts chapter 17, 22 to 28. And what does it tell us? It tells us that God is the Lord of all of history. That actually he made the heavens and the earth. That he has breathed into us and we are only sustained by his breath. That any level of human stuff, uh, flourishing, sorry, any level of human flourishing has to happen in and through him. So the, ro- uh, the result was kind of confusion and um, as a historian that I quite like uh, called Alec Rye says, he says it's decaffeinated Christianity it's decaffeinated Christianity actually kind of just pulled the Bible apart and you're not, you're not left with very much 
So that means that we land in the 20th century. And what happened in the 20th century is that the question of me, of who am I, really, really began to dominate. The individual dominated. And any faith, any belief system was fine, but it needs to be kind of based on your experience and it's all pretty relative and we don't need to impose it on anybody else. And there's no absolute truth. So actually our ideas of God, our thoughts of God, not so plausible, not so desirable, because Christianity is a right and true absolute reality. He's the one true God. There's no fudging that. And so we find ourselves now in the beginning of the 21st century in this kind of disenchanted world. Don't worry, it's going to get more positive soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we find ourselves here in a world, if we're honest, in a culture that says it's probably, probably okay to go to church, but you know, keep your faith really, really private. And we as a culture don't want anything particularly to do with Christianity in any meaningful way. And Christianity, not so plausible anymore. Maybe. Um, everything's about now. Everything's about the immediate. We've got this kind of imminent reality. Rather than being able to kind of look up and see the big story, seek for the things of eternity, what we want is right now, right now, right now. You see this in art, actually. You know, we used to go to art galleries and look at a painting for ages and just stare at it and say, okay, what is happening in this? And now, what do we generally prefer? We prefer Insta, and Insta's like 10 second image, 10 second image, 10 second image. It's so immediate all of the time. We live in this immediate culture that finds it difficult to work out a transcendent frame, to work out that there is a God. But then interestingly, when we step out of our day to day, what do we tend to do? tend to watch a Netflix movie or go to the cinema or something like that. And what do we watch if we don't watch rom-coms? And what do we watch? We watch kind of stories of grand adventure, grand narrative. Whether it's like The Handmaid's Tale or Lord of the Rings or Guardians of the Galaxy. All of them, I love Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like the only Marvel film I like. Um, all of them are these tales of rescue and drama and of something bigger than ourselves. We are hungering always for this reality that is a God reality. So in many ways, at the moment, it feels like Christianity isn't plausible, but we know that it is. And in many ways, it feels like Christianity isn't desirable, because actually it's not even just that, people now, my mates now say to me, you know, well, isn't Christianity just like a bit archaic and irrelevant and isn't the Bible a bit boring? There's this suspicion creeping in that actually Christianity, any real absolute belief system, is in fact probably a little bit destructive. Because we don't want talk of absolutes and we don't want talk of sin, we don't want sexual ethics and discipline. But in it all, the Lord is still the Lord of history. He's the God of heaven and earth. He sustains us by his every breath. He has not changed. And he is much, much bigger than the powers and principalities that surround us. And so actually there's a lot of hope. There's a heck of a lot of hope. Because as I listen to other Christian thinkers around and, and leaders, and as I consider the world, 
think that actually we're moving. We're moving into this whole area of waking desire again. It's going to take a little while to really kind of push into this plausibility thing. But people are beginning to desire God again. Because yes, they've got the questions about absolute truth, and yes, they've got the questions about the difficulty with sin, and yes, they've got the questions about the morality that we call them to. But they know that something's gone all right. Because we were offered a vision through the secular revolution, through the scientific revolution, that actually if we privatised God, if we got him out of the frame, if we focused on technological and economic advancements and instantaneous pleasure and personal freedom, that somehow one day we were just going to reach this point of a kind of democratic utopia where everything would be well and good. And it hasn't flipping happened, has it? You know, just read BBC News every morning, and we are not in a democratic, wonderful utopia. Actually, everything's a bit fractured, and the tectonic plates are moving, and God's right in the middle of it. He's still in control, and he is moving. And so when we look around and we see that actually rampant individualism is leading to a kind of fragile generation and loneliness and anxiety, we know that God is right there and he loves each and every one of us. When we look our lifestyle and we know that the way that we have lived and consumerism has killed and is killing the planet, we know that it's God's creation and he redeems and he restores and he's moving. When we look and we see that actually equality hasn't happened, the gap between rich and poor is growing, we know that he is still God and we can do things like work with Glassdoor and Food Bank, that we can tell people about Jesus, that we can minister and be his hands and feet and he is still God and he is still moving. When we look at politics, which is getting ever, ever more extreme, we can trust that he is still God and he is still moving. And in it, we can begin to know that people will again turn to ask questions about faith because there's a kind of crystallization of discontent at the moment people are going what on earth is going on and some people are going to look to political systems or ideological ideas but actually some will look to god and that's where we come in we're called to be those who know the times and what we should do and to be bold in that to be bold in that we're moving to this whole area of just awakening desire of people longing for God again. And actually, I wonder if we're kind of almost, I think we are there and it's just going to grow. You look back over the past couple of years and as I've taught to sort of clergy mates all around the country, everybody's saying the same thing at Christmas. They're like, gosh, my Christmas services are really full. There are people coming all the time. More and more people are coming on Alpha courses. People are saying, there's got to be something rock solid. There's got to be something certain. There has to be more than right now because this world is not working. And they begin to look to their friends, brothers and sisters, who have a certainty in Christ and we are desirable because we've got the spirit of the living God in us. And he shines out of each of us even if we don't feel it. And people will look to us to answer their questions. It's that Acts 17 verse 27 stuff that some that people will reach out and seek him. I think the spirit of the age is um, summed up by a novelist, Julian Barnes. Um, Julian Barnes is a bit of an acquired taste. Um, he's a raging atheist and he's quite depressing, but he writes some good literature. Um, and he says at the beginning of, of one of his books, um, nothing to be afraid of. He says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. 
I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that's where we've got to as a culture. There's just something's happening here. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. God might be plausible to me, but I desire him. And that's where we have something to say. And so the question isn't about so much about making God desirable. It's about, okay, let's make this God plausible. Which he is, of course he is. He's the one true God. And so the Spirit will be saying to each and every one of us, saying to us as church, actually, we frame our gaze. Because so often in church, and I know that I do this myself and I'm repentant in it, we get kind of scared and we can live as this fragile minority that almost just has to like draw up the drawbridge and hang on until the Lord Jesus returns or we kind of die and go to glory or something like that and just keep running the faith and things. And that's not it, guys. That's not it. We're the church of the living God. He is a God of history. Brexit's not going to undo him. You know, Forrest Johnson isn't going to undo God. He's God. And he's still in control. And he wants to use all of us. Okay. So to land this. Making God plausible. How? Well, don't freak out. Whatever you read on the news. God's sovereign. He's got appointed times. He's working in it all. Let's be really conscious people, that Issachar stuff, those who know the times that we live in. Actually, we're called to be ostriches. No, we're called to be meerkats, not ostriches. That's the right way around. Sorry. That's the one we're going for, meerkats. Um, Definitely don't be an ostrich. That won't go well for the kingdom of God. Anyway. So, we're called to be meerkats, not ostriches. Um, and by that, I'm just, it just means being conscious. You know, saying to the morning service, and John Stott, he's um, gone to glory, he used to say, um, pray. Pray with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another. Actually, these days, probably not a newspaper. You just need your iPhone and the Guardian app. <laughs> um, okay, so pray. Be con- let's be conscious people. Let's be, let's be engaged. Um, let's read. Christian commentators are writing some phenomenal stuff. Graham Tomlin is our bishop, and Graham Tomlin is amazing. And when he comes on the 10th, um, just ask him questions. Do. He'd love it, actually. He's an amazing man. Um, and he's writing an amazing book at the moment of just what's going on in our society and then answers and reasons for faith and the ways that we can respond as, um, as young Christians. John Mark Comer, lots of us read his stuff, Garden City, all of that. It just speaks into the state of play at the moment. Mark Sayers, who I mentioned, he does a podcast, This Cultural Moment, listen to podcasts. Um, he is absolutely a phenomenal writer. I've just been reading this, um, Reappearing Church. It's a phenomenal book. If you're a reader, or I think you can like download it and listen to it on the tube and everything. This guy is so worth um, listening to. Tim Keller, again, read his stuff. It's right on point. Listen, John Tyson, Church of the City, New York, his preaching series at the moment on being mission-minded is astonishing, and it unpacks this in an incredible way. Okay. So let's be aware, let's be conscious, and then let's do this in community. Actually, the devil would love to isolate us, but he calls us to do it together. So we discuss ideas, we pray with each other, we do it in our life groups, in our accountability groups, in the pub after church. One of the best things at Focus was that actually people just sat in the bar afterwards, whether they agreed with the preacher or not, and just wrestled out ideas. And it was wonderful to just sit and listen, everybody bashing things back and forth and going, yeah, I thought that was great. I really agree with that. We do that stuff as church together. We do it in community. And then we get really active. 
Make sure you've got some non-Christian mates. It's some, you know, I fight to spend time with my guys. And then when I'm, I'm there, just don't be afraid of people's questions. You know, when people come at us with, who am I? You can tell exactly who they are. You can say, hey, you're actually a daughter and son of the living God. Yeah, that might be a bit heavy, actually. But you can begin to, um, you can begin to unpick what that might mean in more practical terms. I'm trying to hurry up now, because it's ten past six. Um, okay, what am I here for? People ask you that. You can say, well, look, you're really here to work, but, you know, love your work. Find something that you enjoy doing, but you're also here to rest. Don't burn yourself out. You're here for purpose. You're here for dignity, to worship. When people come at us and they say, oh, isn't God a bit boring? Well, absolutely not. It's flipping amazing. Is there a God? Yes, there's a God. What's going on? When people come at us with that, actually, what's going on? Everything feels a bit shaky. What do we do then? We, we step back and we tell them the story. Just begin to tell them the story that actually there's a God who did make us, that something did go wrong, and we're living in this in-between time, but he is working in it, and he's going to set all things right. Begin to allow people to live in the reality of evil, which is out there, but also the reality of the hope of who Jesus is and all that is to come. And then finally, and really before all else, we do the God stuff. We pray and we take scripture seriously. Actually, prayer is our weapon. And the Holy Spirit is active in every age of history. But he is never, ever reduced to the spirit of the age. The Holy Spirit is above everything that is going on right now. And he dwells in us. And when we pray, things happen. And when we read scripture, actually scripture makes us a certain and confident people. It makes us kind of strong. The Lord works through our reading of it. He shores us up as we get to know his word. And that is so needed in a fragile world. Our culture is very, very fragile. But we don't need to be a fragile people. We are not a fragile people. We are certain people. Because we know the one true God. And when people come at us, and they say things like, did God really say just be aware of that. That was the, the words of Satan in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? God never goes against his word. It is eternal and true. And it shores us up on every side. Okay. So we're those who are aware. We're those who are actively engaged in our friendship groups with the people who are around us, who God's brought into our lives. We're those who are ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, as Peter says. We're those who can tell the story, speak prophetically into others' lives. We're those who pray, and we're those who are people of Scripture. And we do it all together so that we are a church who know the times that we live in and what we should do. And as desire for God is awakened, we become people who say, actually, this is what makes God plausible. And this hope of recognition of a renewed reality can come into being. Can again have a society that recognises the Lordship of Jesus Jesus Christ. That recognises that God who made heaven and earth is the one true God. And that justice can roll like a mighty river. And it will come in all its fullness in the new creation. That's for certain. But heaven touches earth, and we're called to be people.
So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. Um, and as I was praying about this this afternoon, I know a few things that few groups of people that I thought it'd be really important to, to pray for. But um, this is for everybody. So can I invite us all to stand? Um, and just to find some physical space, even if you need to step into the aisle or whatever you need. Um, I know we're a bit cramped in here. Uh, we're also really aware that um, Premier Street isn't the easiest in this, this building, but we're going to be back in church soon. And um, yeah, that'll make it easier at a practical level. But God doesn't change. Um, he wants to meet with us is meeting with us this evening. So where you are, let's just take a moment to, to still our hearts again before the Lord. To let all that has been said settle. To know before God what the hook for you this evening is. I'm just going to wait on him. <laughs> 